BART has uh, its own police force. BART has land use opportunities. It is essentially, I believe, the spine of the Bay Area. And how dare we have a body of nine people and there's not one woman of color or not one young mother uh, or somebody with a disability uh, making decisions about how that system is ran and how it respects not only its writers, but the people who are in the communities around it. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyincolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also tweet at Democracy Color with questions, comments, and episode suggestions. We look forward to hearing from you. And also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power, and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. Latifah Simon, thanks so much for joining us on Democracy in Color. Thank you for it's having good, me. It's good to see your beautiful face. Oh, you so sweet. We just saw each other a few days ago at the Democratic National Convention. I am absolutely still recovering. It was uh, just an experience. You were the <laughs> loudest one in our audience of the luncheon celebrating women of color and uh, the biggest cheerleader. And uh, you're kind of known for that. Yeah. I felt like it was a celebration. I mean, our voices are just really important, right? Whether it's like you're in the you're in the choir, you're in the pulpit, you're in the audience. Um, I'm a black woman, so it's like when you feel something, you express it. I'm not going to sit there while I'm listening to Nina Turner or Amy Allison and take notes. Okay. I'm going to jump up and I'm going to praise the brilliance and the power that's right in front of me. Um, that's my lineage. That's what we do. That's and that's what, how we show respect. Right, right. Well, I want to just, first of all, just off the top say, you're running for office. Yes. Uh, we're sitting here in Emeryville, yes. which people don't know is uh, very close to Oakland, California. You live in Oakland, and you're running for BART board director. Yep. Just what is that and why are you running? Um, there's a number of reasons why I decided to run. You know, years ago, um, I went through political training called Emerge for Democratic Women, it was a, it's an amazing program. I learned a lot. But while I was in the training, I thought, well, one of the things that I would love to do is help a candidate run. I would never want to run. Um, at that time, I was a single mother with a teenager. This is before I got married and had my second child. It is before uh, the love of my life got cancer and passed away. Uh, I am mm. now a mother of two. I'm a widow. I am... And have seen everything that a young black woman could see, you know, have being a child who grew up like just in the smack of uh, the, the the resonance of the drug war. I was raised in the Fillmore in San Francisco. I've seen and done a lot. I've worked with young people in prisons and on the streets and worked to pass policies locally, uh, organized and 
led campaigns that were successful for young people struggling in the most um, ridiculous ways, seeing that communities should be supporting young people who are the most vulnerable. So after my, my amazing partner passed away, um, I found myself, one, when, when you battle cancer, you, <laughs> the person who survives is completely broke. And I was parenting these two children, but, but also there's a lot of reflection when your life changes about what you, what commitment for me I wanted to um, hold myself up to in this next phase of my life. And it was for me now seeing so much, having done so much, stepping back and saying, I'm sick of, I'm sick of begging people to make changes mm. that I think that we need. Um, and as somebody who relies on public transportation, I'm legally blind, I don't drive. I found myself one day on BART and the BART stopped. I was with my baby girl, um, who was then three. I sold my husband's car two days after he died. I didn't have any use for it. So I'm back on public transportation. And it was a whirlwind for me in that moment. The BART was stopped in a tunnel. And I just looked around and I thought of um, Mrs. Johnson, Oscar Grant's mother. I thought of all the people that uh, have inspired me to be the person in the room that shouts <laughs> and then the person that goes home and helps to write the policy to create whatever change that needs to happen. And I thought, you know what? I want to be a part of the conversation on the other side of the table that shifts these systems. And as I began to later on study and understand what transit policy has meant in the Bay Area, it, it was it was very clear that I needed to be a part of the transit justice conversation. Is it true that the whole conception of BART, which if people aren't from the Bay Area, is uh, essentially connects the suburbs to the main cities. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a suburban um, um, system. It's a suburban system. It was created exactly um, to ensure that folks who took advantage of, of white flight got back into the city each day to work. Uh, understanding the history of, of, of mass transit in the United States, and I'd studied that in my, my policy work at Mills College, but more or less being tethered to now the system, knowing that it's way too expensive, that the law enforcement capacity is too too inept <laughs> to be... Well, and, and let me just talk about that, because you evoked Oscar Grant's mother. Absolutely. Oscar Grant's case, and uh, I mean, it was just such a national uh, story for months and months, is uh, it was a New Year's uh, mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Uh the police came. There was a, some some somehow something happened, and at the end of it, an unarmed Oscar Grant was dead. Yeah. It was it was we we look at these high profile shootings of black men uh, by police officers. In this case, Bart, the okay. very same system you're running to absolutely represent and be an advocate for. I often think when I get on Bart because I write it almost every day. Mm-hmm. This could have been the very train Oscar Grant had ridden. Absolutely. You know, we have that, we're not that far from all that stuff that happened. That's right. So what is really important, and many folks have said, Latifa, you should have thought about running for the Board of Supervisors or for city council, or you, know, you should have been working up to an assembly seat. What I want to be clear, outside of my personal motivations for wanting to run for uh, a system that I am one tethered to when I will be held accountable every single day because I ride the system when I'm running it. People will be able to hold me accountable. I'm excited about that. But more importantly, we have to understand that infrastructure 
in our cities and especially in the lack of infrastructure in our rural and suburban communities where African-American people of color, queer folks, families, um, we absolutely need people at the table. The BART budget is in the billions each year. And we know that in November, when the voters pass a much needed almost $3.8 billion BART budget, uh, BART bond, we're going to get the opportunity to revamp a system. I actually want to be a part of a Bay Area where folks over this regional platform that we live in have the opportunity and can't afford uh, to be a part of civic life, can get to work, can get to treatment, can get to whatever they want to and be able to afford it where it's safe. BART has uh, its own police force. BART has land use opportunities. Um, it is essentially, I believe, the spine of the Bay Area. And how dare we have a body of nine people and there's not one woman of color or not one young mother uh, or somebody with a disability uh, making decisions about how that system is ran and how it respects not only its writers, but the people who are in the communities around it. When we, um, or I always say we like I'm already elected. but right. <laughs> Well, I mean, in some sense, being a candidate, you have to start... Uh, thinking I about mean, the people that you're coming forward for. You know, it is. I, I, I just I've, I've already seen myself in that seat because I owe so many people. I have, again, been mentored by some of the best organizers. When I win, do you know the work that we're going to be able to do? It is so big. It is about displacement. It is it's, it's about I, law enforcement. I, and yeah. I, I'm just going to say, you know, with Oscar Grant, the protests that happened yeah. month over month here in Oakland. Absolutely. Have a long history police brutality in this this city. That's right. Uh, doesn't distinguish us, for obviously, from, from other cities. But uh, I remember going to a public meeting. Yep. Uh, the community was incensed. The uh, The woman who ran the BART system mm-hmm. was tone deaf. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way of putting it. Mm-hmm. There was no one really uh, speaking uh, for the community in the way that they wanted to be represented in response to the shooting death. Has What would you do with the police force in BART, what would be the top agenda item in order to prevent the kind of violence we saw that led to the death of Oscar Grant? There are um, just so many opportunities to reform and enrich uh, that police force, not with dollars, but with with humane common sense. Every single day as a BART writer, I see um, what happens when um, police officers are patrolling a system where there's not a great deal of racial and class consciousness. Um, I think not just with the BART police, but with law enforcement in general, it's not just about training them up to be better. It's actually about holding the leadership accountable to create and hire a force. If we're going to have a police force, make sure that force is is inept to actually support and not harbor mm. um, disarm. So, you know, th- holding the the chief accountable, that'll be my job. Holding the general manager of BART accountable, that'll be my job. Making sure that every single person who, from the homeless man who is literally dying in his own urine at Powell Street, um, when it rains, I don't know if you've 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 seen the influx of homeless folks. We are. Talking- I, I've seen them in Oakland as it gets expensive in in our city. I've seen the tent cities that are going up all around. I, I. Uh, it's, it's all connected. It's so all. It's all really really. It's connected because when you have when we don't have places for people to sleep and eat, and you have to steal for a meal, um, and it rains or or the weather is napped or folks are afraid of law enforcement. Homeless folks go down 
underground into our transit system. And for whatever reason, um, the BART board of directors and the staff, we haven't, they haven't <laughs> figured out how to really create intersectional opportunities for folks to be safe, right? So we know in San Francisco we have a very large homeless problem, but we also have amazing organizations that are working with these men, women, and children. My dad was homeless, and he passed away in the Tenderloin. These issues, when we run for office, our personal stories yeah. must connect with the policies that we want to bring forth. How, how is it? I just, you know, with your with your dad's story, you know, what happened with your dad? Mm-hmm. How, no, my dad was amazing. He was probably I called I call him a street prophet. You know, he um, was the only person in my family who didn't go to college, and I don't even believe my dad finished high school. But what he was to me is um, he was a radical. He was a revolutionary. He was a part of the Nation of Islam. He named me um, Latifa. I was going to yes. say, uh, what's <laughs> the meaning of it Latifa? It means gentle, gentle. And, and kind, and <laughs> and Farsi actually it means velvet. Ooh, and then, <laughs> and then yeah. So it's, my dad was was political to the day he died. We talked every single day. He was a black man, like many black men who love their children, um, but was never necessarily in a, in a space to parent. Mm. Um, he taught me through the love he had for me, forgiveness, but also a fierceness. I would come to the Tenderloin um, to visit and hang out with him every other day, you know, for the last, I don't know, 15 years. And I was at a conference and got a call that he had died in his room of heart failure. And he was clean and sober the last few years of his life. He was a beautiful man. And he always said, when you run for office, I cannot wait. And he always had it in in his spirit that I would do that. I would be that child, the sick baby girl who was born early, mm-hmm. that I would do the things that he always wanted to do, that I would be like my grandmother, a crusader, the uh, kind of woman like she was who gave her only car to the Black Panthers, or my aunt who was one of the Damira Ahmad was one of the first women to to organize the student strike at San Francisco State in 1968. So coming from lineage of justice in the Bay Area, of working class people, um, I'm running for the BART board not to ascend to a higher position. I want to be clear. There's work to be done. And when you don't have sisters and brothers from the conditions that I've seen and grown up with, making decisions about how people get to work and how they get groceries and how they pick up their children. Something is wrong. Mm. So I absolutely, um, unequivocally think that not only is this the office that I have to run for and win, but when I get in, it's about governing well. And you don't mm. govern um, by yourself. I'm going to continue to do the coalition work that I've done. It's, I've, you know, first of all, your dad would be very proud of you. Thank you. I'm just really uh, struck by uh, how firmly you are in a tradition and how important it is, particularly now, you know, people focus on the presidential, yes. right? We yes. just came out of the convention. Absolutely. All of focus on uh, the Senate seats Absolutely. and those races. But it's really down ballot, you know, representing the transportation, representing the school board or the city council, the county. Uh, those, you know, touch our lives so deeply. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about your relationship with another politician speaking mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. the senate and we have an uh we have kamala harris yes. who's running uh for senate here yes. you knew her back in the day what where did you first meet her i gotta say i just love who she is as a human being um i'm <laughs> i met kamala when i was in my early 20s and um 
I was running the Center for Young Women's Development, which is still one of the most beautiful organizations, I feel like, in, in the country and the world. Um, it's run by young women in the criminal justice system. And I was one of those young women. I was the director. And we had come up on our 10th year anniversary. And a woman named Andrea Dustile, who was actually the founder of Emerge, before she founded Emerge, said, I want you to meet this woman. She works for the city attorney's office, and she's been doing work around sex trafficking. And I met Kamala, and she was extremely young, but the exact same person that she is now, extremely intense, fiery, deliberate. And I met with her, and she said, I'm going to help you raise money, but I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm going to be on your event committee. We're going to do this event. She would come to the Center for Young Women's Development. She had this little car, and she would have flip chart paper in the back. She would change from her sneakers to her high heels because she never wanted the young women to see her dressed down. Mm. Just very, very, very clear. I want you all um, to be great. There was a young woman who was a sex worker who came up to her in one of those first meetings and said, I want to be just like you. And she looked at her, and she pointed to this young woman in the face, and she said, no, I need you to be like you. (laughs) Right. I need you to be like your mother. I need you to be like... And I was just like... Whoa! And when she told me she was going to run for the district attorney, so we had developed this beautiful relationship, super hard on me. Um, Why? Why was it hard on you? No, she was super hard on me. Why? What would she say? In to a you? good way, right? And that that mentorship, I, I, she would, she was so interested in me being a good leader at the Center for Young Women's Development. Latifa, let's talk about your program plan for the next year. I, you know, she was really into strategy. Um, she was the best unpaid consultant I've ever had in my life. <laughs> uh, and she never let me get away with anything, right? And uh, or, or not having a, she always wanted me to have a sharp analysis when we were talking about organizing or holding a law enforcement official accountable. Um, she really pushed me to go beyond anecdotes. So now that she's running for U.S. Senate, I've worked for her five, for five years in the district attorney's office. She was elected, and I never thought I would work for anybody in law enforcement. My whole life has been trying to transform these whole these horrible systems that um, I think have done us quite a lot of harm. But when Kamala was elected and she called me in to run her reentry programs, there was nobody I'd, I would rather work for. And to this day, um, her mentorship personally has has deeply touched my life, but also I was able to see up close what the power of the prosecutor, the the power of the benevolent um, progressive woman who's now the man in, in the office of, of the D- district attorney. She did some really beautiful stuff. Yeah, when you say now the man, I, I always <laughs> wonder that because we're in the age of Black Lives Matters mm-hmm. and just a, an elevation thanks to Michelle Alexander and, you know, 100,000 other people who are pointing to uh, how broken the system is Absolutely. of criminal justice. Can you transform it from the inside? And uh, you've had a number of roles, including mm-hmm. at the DA's office, mm-hmm. that you know speak to the ability to do some things. But is there a wholesale kind of uh, uh, reform, like a radical reform, or is it that we need to just throw it out and start over? What, what do you think the solution is? I wish here? we could start from scratch. But today... Um, you know, California, even with our reforms, we still house more women prisoners than anywhere else in the world, um, geographically. I think that folks who are locked up, they want us so deeply to transform the system and throw it out. But the fact of the matter is, I always say, we ain't ready. <laughs> we, aren't, we aren't ready even to—I've worked in reentry for 22 years— 
and the hundreds and hundreds of women that I've employed after they've gotten out of prison, I've seen systems, not only the criminal justice system, slam opportunities in, op- in, in their faces. I think... Once we get to a point, and I love what BLM is doing in the Movement for Black Lives, I love what queer young people are doing across the country, because what they're doing is they're creating a new imagination about what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we certainly wouldn't have anticipated your generation, my generation, that we would have uh, such a powerful movement. It's so great. And led by women, uh, I, I was like, well, they're so brave. They're so, I mean, to stand in a presidential candidate's face or to stand, you know. And I remember that, um, uh, the exchange between the protester at the Hillary Clinton fundraiser during the primary. And uh, Hillary Clinton had the mic and said, no, I'm going to talk in the mic. She said, uh-uh, we're interrupting the regularly scheduled programming for me to call you to account what bravery. This is the generation of, of Harriet, right? <sighs> this is the generation of Harriet, and I feel like this generation has lost everything. This is the generation, the, the children uh, who have lived mass incarceration. This is a generation of children who have seen SWAT teams storm into their houses over traffic tickets, right? This generation of young people, of young women, of queer folks, of trans folks, um, they're uplifted in ways that our ancestors could have only dreamed about. And they are free, even in their captivity, living in these neighborhoods, under these policies. The movement for black lives actually shows the possibility of what free movement looks like to really hold public officials, even the progressives, extremely accountable. So no one is sacrosanct. And I wanted to ask you about that because, look, Bay Area, we live here. And... Uh, we always talk about the bubble that we live. It's a multi. We have this deep social justice, multiracial, progressive thing going on, mm-hmm. but we also have some other things going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, people in a you know in the Democratic Party that dominates this this area, yeah. people are on a spectrum. Yep. Um, other parts of the country, they might not be considered <laughs> conservative. Here, Absolutely. they're like, oh, get to get them out of the you know these right wing, and so actually everywhere else they would be considered moderate. Um, what? What can we do because we just were last week looking at how big of a tent the Democratic Party is. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we hold uh, people who are either in that party or identify you as progressive, Mm -hmm. hold them to account, particularly as the demographic shift and uh, people of colors, you know, the numbers, but also the need to have a stronger voice um, continues to be more urgent and pressing? I love that question. Dr. Cornell West asks you know, this particular generation that's a little younger than me. I, I, I'm so sad that I'm not a young person anymore. Wait, wait, wait. But <laughs> because you're in your 30s. Late 30s. You're in your 30s. <laughs> I'm in my 40s. So please, I, you know, the young generation that um, you're talking about, are, you know, they're millennials they're, yes. in their 20s. These, you know. He's asked them to be ridiculous. And I love that quote because for the ridiculous, brave, audacious young leaders who thought that they could bring about uh, desegregation or emancipation or lead a movement uh, in the fields. These are ridiculous ideas of breaking the status quo. And so when we think about holding folks on the left accountable, absolutely, because it was Sister Kat Brooks out of Oakland who said, amazing activist, organizer, mother, said, when people get elected, they drink a serum. And it just makes them crazy, right? It's like something happens after they get sworn in. And I think that there's there's something to that that is true. Um, and I want people 
to be at my door holding me accountable when I get elected because I believe that um, we live in a, a, a society, not just California, not just San Francisco, but where we're power, we have been taught that that is, is what we, we should all seek. And when you get a little bit of it, unless you're checked, unless you have a base, um, you can go astray. So, you know, from progressives to moderates, again, the, the, the moderate here would be the radical in Ohio, right? But <laughs> I don't know. Talk to Nina Turner. I'm not sure that. that's true. That. I'm not sure that's true anymore. She's my idol, actually. She's I can't wait to meet her. Um, wait, you've never met me? No. What? That's why I was so pumped. She was, at, yeah. she was in the very seat I, yes. on the show, uh, not but a few weeks back. She is, to me, the kind of politician I actually want to be, right? Again, audacious, beautiful, always invokes her mother, always invokes her story. When she was speaking in Philadelphia, I was like, yeah, on so many levels, like that freedom to just do the right thing at all times. She has an accountability clock in her heart and her soul. That is the ancestors. It's, it's bigger than policy and, and budgets, right? Um, she understands and knows all of those things, too. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I was going to I was going to say, you know, Social media tells you tells you a lot, tells you not that much. But in your case, uh, you're you know we started off this conversation when I said you're such a cheerleader for other people. And um, one of the other uh, people that were on the stage last week at our event was Jane Kim. I just remember this absolutely beautiful Facebook post you wrote about San Francisco Supervisor Jane Kim, who's actually a friend of yours. One of my dearest friends in the world. Tell me. Tell that story. What What is it about her? What is it about your, your friendship mm-hmm. that is so special? So, you know, Jane is running in a very, very deep and contested race for a state Senate. And I had uh, a friend who is a, a very prominent Democrat in San Francisco. Um, the Democratic Party is deeply supporting her opponent. Why was I friends with Jane and why was I always at her events? And um, she was part of a... a a very kind of contentious conversation around a vote around Ross Mercurimi, which really split folks years ago in, in our city. And Ross Mercurimi being the former San Francisco sheriff who was embroiled in a controversial um, issue around domestic violence that became a national or a national story, but also a citywide fight. Uh, and I would say gave the more moderate mayor a lot of political license. So that it kind of split the progressive movement. There. Absolutely. And... You know, one of the things I think is important, um, and my dad taught me this, is loyalty is extremely important, not to a fault. But when someone is good to you and they stand by you, you stand by them too. Um, You stand by them, um, especially when you can have dialogue and you could, you know, have political struggle. Jane has is someone who... um, Outside of being a politician, I've seen her run five races and win them. Um, she started school board, yeah, right? And, she uh, was school board. She ran twice. She's run twice for board of supervisors. Um, she's fearless and is always the underdog, never gets the big endorsements, but always sort of sticks to her guns, of her both the politics and the rule of law. Um, but she's a good person. She was very, very close to my husband, who was a journalist, and really was there for us during his two-year fight. And would bring us lasagna and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and and quiche and stuff to the hospital. Uh, I think she learned how to cook because Kevin was sick. And um, when Kevin died, I was I just never thought he would pass away. So, of course, you know, the two weeks, couldn't even get the funeral together. It was friends who, including Jane, 
who did that. Jane helped us get married, actually, during his his um, his fight with cancer. And that was right in City Hall. In the I, City Hall. I was, was amazing. I was there. I remember I was working for the Department on the Status That's of right. Women, and I just I said, okay, I'm just going to take a break from work really quick. <laughs> I was, was able to. Unreal. We, did, we walked out, and we thought there were going to be five people, and there was this whole community there to love us and support us as Kevin was living and dying right, of cancer. But my commitment to women running for office, especially when I love them and they're part of my family, I am a storyteller. Um, that's how I do political education when I'm working in the jails or on the streets with young people. And I felt like instead of having a political answer, the many questions that I've gotten about my allegiance um, to this sister of color, I just wanted to write and tell the story, the human story, um, to uh, friends so that I didn't have to butt heads um, around a political issue. I love Jane because, one, she is a good friend, but two, I feel really good about her being in that state office. I have a five-year-old, and so the people who we elect, um, they're making decisions about universal preschool. They're making decisions about what kids eat in, in their lunches. They're making decisions about how we either fund education or incarceration. And my good friend would do a great job. Mm. And you said something about her bringing the dress over. Did she do bring a bring? She brought four dresses. She went shopping. I was, She's first of all, Jim Kim. <laughs> If anyone isn't, just Google her because that woman can dress. She can dress. And She's very thoughtful about it. <laughs> thoughtful. I don't know if it's designer. I don't think there's any other city that has such well-dressed yes. politicians. But she's like the, the, the top of, you know. And so you look at her clothing and how she presents, and it's just perfect, perfect. And, and edgy and awesome. Um, so anyway, she brought you some dresses. She. I was in the bed. Um, when, I mean, I think back about that time and was in the bed and couldn't move. And I, the funeral was literally the next day and I didn't have anything to wear. She comes in, doesn't say anything. Um, and I kind of had my the cover over my head when visitors would come. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I thought every every word that would come out of my mouth would be a sob. And so she just quietly laid the dresses on the bed and then leaves a note. And pick the one you like, I'll pick up the others and I'll take them back. And I just love her. You know what I mean? Like that is... When we think about women holding each other up in the good and the bad, it is not just um, going to events with folks and taking pictures behind some kind of labeled wall in the back, right? It's about building a community when things get super, super difficult. And it is not sexy. And it is it is not um, about politics. But when it's about those moments, those are the kinds of folks that I am so blessed to be able to call community. Mm. You're one of them, Amy. And, um, you know... It is, it, is, it is about our, our whole collective lives. And so when we run for office, right, we, we need to think about real human dignity in people, right? And so folks say, BART isn't sexy. It's not a sexy position. I see, I'm on that BART train every day, and I see the little Filipino woman who I sit next to consistently, and she comes from Richmond every single day to clean toilets at the Hyatt. It costs her $270 just to just BART to and fro. So these are the things, and I've learned to ask people about their stories from folks like Jane, mm-hmm. from folks like London Breed, from folks that I've grown the up San, with. Another San Francisco supervisor. Love London. It's like you came up with, the, um, they always say, you know, this book, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, that it's, uh, it's a happy accident, the year you were born mm-hmm. and where you were born, mm-hmm. that sets you up for the access to the top of your game. And in... Your case, you're co- you've come up with uh, a group of women who yeah. are, uh, including yourself, who are 
on a trajectory to be at the top of the game, just to be the progressive leaders of the, of, of the movement and the voice and the heart and the soul and the love uh, that that we we want to see in the politics. Um, I just want to acknowledge that you've been named the new president of the Akhenati Foundation, which is one of the premier racial justice uh, funders in the country. Uh, that's new. Have you even started yet? Is no, it? No, I started I, a couple of weeks, oh, and it's amazing. Yeah. And I'm so honored. What does it mean for you to be in that role? What do you want to do? So. The Akhenati Foundation, it's its a philanthropic foundation, and they fund organizations, mostly locally, but also nationally, that um, are really working to end racialized injustice. They have an amazing and unique strategy from like building, funding organizations that are building power to also creating policy change to also arts and civic life inside of Oakland, all with the lens of um, changing the narrative, but changing the real life experiences of, of folks who um, are struggling through racialized oppression. So this role of president, I mean, my role is going to lead an organization that actually has an amazing and exciting staff and founders to do what they do best, and that is support leaders. I've often thought about, wow, you know, maybe I should be right back on the front lines, you know, with the bullhorn. There's so much happening. Blocking a freeway. Blocking a freeway. we got a lot of freeways around here. Like laying out... (laughs) And then I think, you know what? I have done that, and I'm good at it. And guess what? I have some privilege in my life right now where I get to be at tables where I get to fund leaders who are thinking audaciously and who are thinking about ridiculous struggle, all right? And so my lane— Because we all got to stay in our lane. We got to stay in those lanes. And they can be big (laughs) lanes. They can be small lanes, whatever we choose to do. But my lane in in this moment in my life is to be thoughtful and strategic about how we support institutions that are creating the most change. And because I've led organizations, I know how hard it is to be on the other side of the table asking for resources. As a candidate, I know how hard it is uh, to pick up the phone and ask your Auntie Demira for $75. I want to really hopefully democratize what philanthropy looks like for movement leaders. Um, and I do that now at my, in my role at the Rosenberg Foundation, but to be elevated in this role of president, um, it, it's, it's, ve- it's very humbling. And I'm going to do, I believe, an excellent job. Um, and it's, it's a blessing. And so, it, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I have to ask you just as a as a person, where does this calm confidence come from? I mean, it's not like you came, you were raised in a, no. you know, in in an environment that would cultivate that necessarily. Where does that come from? Because so, I think women could learn from it. I think people so could learn from it. So let me tell you it. something. We're going to keep it real, real. It comes from therapy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Let's keep it real. I think that um, self-care is so important. And, you know, by all means losing my dad and my husband within 11 months of each other, you know, getting a cancer diagnosis myself, beating cancer, being left with these two babies. Like, I wasn't supposed to be a single mother again. I, like, I'm very transparent about my life. I filed bankruptcy. Like, things were not good. But what has been good, my whole life, when I was running for the Center for Young Women's Development, I made it very clear that who we were going to be as poor women, we were going to be solid. And so I had a line item in my budget called, you know, um, self-care. And I have committed myself to that, to modeling that with the young people that I still work for in different ways in my life of taking care of myself. Meaning I, I think therapy is really important. Um, I think sometimes taking time out to sleep 
is really important. Mm. Um, and so when I get an opportunity every week, sometimes every other week, but to sit down with someone and play out why I feel like an impersonator and why, you know, I'm dealing with this issue and get feedback, then I could be a little bit more thoughtful. Latifa, you are strong. You are smart. Um, on the days that I don't think that I am, I have friends that I can call up and, and I could say I feel like crap. And who am I to be running for office? I don't have everything together. And then I have, whether it's a therapist or a sister friend or a mentor like Kamala, who says, who does? But if not you, who? who? And, right? Yeah. And if not right. now, when? And I deeply believe that. Um, and I have two daughters. And so they need to see me as confident as possible. So when I feel extremely down or I feel like I'm not supposed to be in these spaces, I got to check myself. Because I don't want Layla, who's five, who is fatherless, who has a, a, a mother who's hella busy, um, who holds her like all night we sleep together, uh, to look at herself in the mirror ever and think that she's not the best. I owe that to Layla. Mm. I owe it to her. Well, speaking of, I, I think you have, I think your mom takes her to church and then she gives her a new outfit. <laughs> what is this? So the beauty of um, a family and community. Kevin, my husband, was the only child, and it's his mom. And so Layla is her dream. And she also helps me raise Layla. So she has her three days a week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, often. And she takes her to church. She is a church lady. And you go into Mother Weston's house, and Layla has her own room. She lives in Richmond, full of dresses and pink stuff. And her pride and joy is taking that baby to church. And I, while I'm not at church every Sunday, maybe go a few times a year, the beauty of actually seeing this lineage, right? I was very close with my grandmother and seeing Layla have this beautiful relationship, it, her moral grounding, I'm not talking about in the church, but of learning from this elder, this black woman who loved her son so, and now she gets to give Layla that gift. I, want, I wish, working with young people all these years, I see how important that is, because I worked with so many young people who never had that. They didn't have their mother, got less their grandmother. And it is again, what I owe my daughter, and it's actually what I feel like we all deserve. We deserve elders who just love on us. Um, and in, in roles of going back to the elected piece, it's like, it's not paternal or maternal, but when we're elected, we are like stewards. We have to think of ourselves as people who um, have a duty, like Layla's grandmother has a duty to do right by Layla. When I'm elected, I have a duty to do right by that lady on the bar train. There's just not a, I my perception, I'm around politicians all the time. There's not a lot of people who think of public services stewardship mm-hmm. or an expression of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need more of that. Yeah. It's not about power. It's, it should really be about service and about a dedication to paying people back. Right. Yeah. That's what I want to do. And you're, and you're still a young woman. Yeah. Your greatest hope uh, for what you'd like to see happen in the next, let's say, 10 years. Just one thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, there's so many things. <laughs> um, I'm so concerned about working class migration in the Bay Area. We call it displacement. We call it gentrification. We call it so many things. But I was evicted from my home when I was 17 years old. My mother was evicted. 
and it was our childhood home, and all of our stuff was thrown out onto the streets. I was in the 12th grade. It was embarrassing. It was the community that we lived in. It was horrible. It was horrifying. And I see, I know what it, when I when I walk down the street or when I'm on the bus, and I see mattresses and furnitures, furniture outside have houses. I know what happened. I say that to say I still have dreams about that. Like it never goes away. You know, like you have the dreams. Some people talk about when they're in college or in law school and they have dreams about not turning in that last paper. I have dreams about my eviction, and tens of thousands of people across the Bay Area are living in that terror every day of feeling insecure. Um, I want people to feel secure with where they live. Again, I'm not going to, I don't believe in my role um, being a BART board of director, heal that, but I'm going to be a voice in why stories are important. Um, I want people to have homes and I want them to be secure in them. I want children to be like my baby. Like, I went to school, kindergarten through 12th grade. grade. I went to three schools, partly oh. because of stable, being stable. Even though we were struggling, the migration of families, was a, it was a different thing living in the Fillmore in the 80s and 90s, right? Until it, 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 it went the way that it did. Um, it used to be a black community, yeah. a lot of culture, yes. jazz. It was no... Oh, God, uh, yeah. yeah. San Francisco is the most expensive city in the country now. You cannot live there. You can't live here either anymore in Oakland. Here being Oakland, yeah. Three bed, a three-bedroom apartment, so you have three kids, two kids. It's $3,200 on average now. And so I want a Bay Area to be a place where working-class people can actually live and thrive, and their babies can dream. You can't do that when you're on six-month leases or you're living in hotel rooms. I don't know how that changes um, and I don't think any politician knows how to completely change it or social scientists know how to change those dynamics because we would have changed them. But what we could do is consistently be in struggle to figure out how to secure families um, and their well-being and their children's well-being and elderly folks, their well-being. And um, I just want to live in a place where we're safe. We all want the same things. It's just how we get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to just thank you for the spirit and the heart that you brought in this studio here, uh, Democracy and Color. I'm just really lucky to have have you in conversation. Thank you so much, Latifah Simon. I love this conversation, um, and I love this organization, and I love what y'all are putting out. Thank you. Democracy and Color is a project of PowerPack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, in the East Bay, and produced by Lulu Matute and technical support from Anthony Hernandez. And a very special thanks to our guest, Latifah Simon. You can support her campaign for BART Board of Directors of the 7th District at latifahforbart.com. And if you're a BART writer out here in the Bay living in San Francisco or the East Bay, get out there and vote for Latifah Simon on November 8th. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us. <laughs>